Father, we come to you this morning expecting to hear your voice, to encounter your presence, Lord. We just say as a people, we're desperate to know you. We've got to have you. We ask in Jesus' name that you would breathe on us with a fresh breath of the Spirit. We ask for the oil of heaven to flow through this house, Lord. Lord, we just say this morning, we're clay on the potter's wheel. Shape us. Lord, we want to be vessels that are useful to your house, to your kingdom. We want to see this region come to know the beauty and the glory and the splendor and majesty of Christ Jesus. You alone are worthy, Jesus. You alone are worthy. So we bring you our praise, our adoration. We ask that you'd be with us this morning. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Somebody say amen. 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 Well, King James, um, he had a problem on his hands with the Puritans and the um, Anglicans. They just couldn't get along. And so one of the Puritans actually recommended that what he, what he should do is get the Puritans and the Anglicans to work on a new translation of the Bible because the Puritans were using the Geneva Bible and the Anglicans were using the Bishop's Bible. And if they um, kind of had a project, they thought, to translate the Bible together, maybe they would learn to get along. And so King James didn't ask for much with the, with the new translation. He just asked that they didn't put any notes in the Bible because he didn't want there to be any room for them to bicker any further. And so when the King James, what we call the, the KJV, the King James Version, and sometimes it's called the Authorized Version, when the King James Version was complete, King James gave the rights to print this new Bible to one family called the Barker family. The Barkers, um, they, they, they alone had the right to print the KJV. Well, um, that was a pretty good gig because King James re- was going to require that every church have a, have a Bible in the uh, a KJV in their church. And so that's a good way to make money when the government mandates that everyone has to buy your product, right? It's a pretty, pretty good gig. And the only problem is, is that the Barkers, um, in one translation of the KJV that they printed, um, when you get to the Ten Commandments and you get to the commandment, thou shall not commit adultery, um, they left out the not, okay? And so the translation read, thou shalt commit adultery. And this translation became known as the wicked Bible and uh, the patriarch, the, the father of the home Barker goes to prison over this and he gets fined like a crazy amount of cash for leaving out that, that knot. That knot needs to be there. Okay. He left out the knot and came known as the wicked Bible. They burned most of them, but they're actually like, a, if they're, they're worth a lot of money, <laughs> um, but you, you won't be able to find one. Um, the wicked Bible, as we approach Romans chapter one, we're going we're gonna to hear Paul begin to talk about wickedness. What is wickedness? Where does it come from? Where does it begin and where does it lead us? We'll find Paul saying today that the nations have re- refused to acknowledge God and to thank him. And as they refuse to acknowledge God and to thank him, they become futile in their thinking. And he says their hearts become darkened and Lloyd-Jones called this the, the, the greatest summary of all of human history is that as humanity rejects God, they become futile and they're foolish in their thinking and their hearts become darkened. As we refuse to th- thank God for all he's done and created and given us, we actually begin this process of degradation. We become foolish in our thinking, our hearts become darkened, and we begin to spiral downwards as we reject God morally and spiritually and mentally, we step into a process of decay. This is what Romans 1 teaches. You refuse to acknowledge God and you will decay foolish in your thinking. 
Your heart becomes hard and dark, and society itself begins to fall apart as a society rejects God. And so where does wickedness begin? It begins in a refusal to thank and acknowledge God. And in the same sense, where does holiness begin? Holiness begins in a commitment to worship and to thank God. Holiness is not just having a list of rules and obeying those rules. Holiness is honoring God's commands out of a deep love and adoration and appreciation for all He is. And so holiness begins with thankfulness. And if you're not thankful, you're not holy. And in the same sense, wickedness begins with a commitment to reject God. Y'all listening to me this morning? It's all right if you're not, because I'm going to talk anyway, okay? Verse 18 of Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and His divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. F.F. Bruce, he, he really works to point out that um, to the Jewish mind, righteousness is the idea of being in the right. And unrighteousness is the idea of being in the wrong. And that concept, it really carries courtroom imagery. So it's the idea of being right in court or being wrong in court. And so Exodus chapter 9, verse 27, for instance, Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron. This is as uh, the plagues are happening um, called Moses' Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned, the Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. The idea of being righteous is being in the right, and the idea of unrighteousness is being in the wrong. And so Paul concluded the last section, starting in verse 16 and 17, by quoting Habakkuk, when Habakkuk said, The righteous shall live by faith. That line could better be translated, by faith the righteous shall live. We see that only those in faith are deemed in the right. What makes you in the right is, is not your, your works, your good, your good deeds, because scripturally speaking, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. None of us are righteous in and of ourselves. We've all fallen. We've all lied. We've all stolen. We are all have committed acts of wickedness. But the scripturally speaking, according to the gospel, the only way to be in the right is to live by faith. And when you put your faith in God, God imparts to me the very righteousness of Christ. Jesus takes upon himself my wickedness and he imparts to me the righteousness of Jesus. And there you should say, thank you, God. 
All of those, according to Paul in Romans chapter 1, outside of faith are in the wrong. And all those who are in the wrong, according to Paul, are under God's wrath. It's interesting because Romans is a book where Paul really lays out the gospel. He is laying out what it means to receive salvation through Jesus. Romans is about the gospel. And Paul starts the gospel with this. All of those outside of faith are under wrath. So Lord Jones again labors to communicate that Paul starts by saying, my motivation to preach the gospel to you is not that you have a better life experience. My motivation to preach the gospel to you, Paul says, is not that you have peace, not that you have abundance, not that you have a feel-good feeling and chill bumps. My motivation to preach the gospel to you is that you escape the wrath of God, the judgment of God. And that's a piece of the gospel that we've thrown away in our modern feel-good society. But again, imagine courtroom imagery. God is the just judge of the universe. And so the, the wrath of God is aimed at those who are in the wrong. It's just. Now, what is the wrath of God doing here? So Paul says, all of the ungodly are under the wrath of God. It's being revealed from heaven against all of those who practice unrighteousness. Well, what does the wrath of God do? We're going to primarily ex explore this idea next week, but because the text brought it up this week, I want to take just a moment to show you. How does God's wrath express itself, according to Paul, here in this life? Romans 1, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. God gave them up, 126, Romans 126. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, Romans 128. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. What does the wrath of God do in this life? He gives you over to your own wickedness and desires. He allows your heart to possess all the evil that you crave. And when you have the evil that you crave, you'll realize that you, what you have is your own destruction. In other words, Paul says that as you dishonor God, you step into this process of constantly degrading, of, of rotting away. And the wrath of God steps back and lets you rot. And so Paul says that when a society refuses to acknowledge, to thank, and worship God, the wrath of God steps, all it, all it does is God's goodness and His grace and His intention to lead us, God steps back and lets you have what you want. The wrath of God allows the process of degradation to continue. What does God do? He hands us over, gives us over. Three times he says, he, the God gave them over to the lust of their hearts. God gave them over to their darkened minds. God gave them over because they refused to acknowledge him. He allows that pattern to continue. Now, this morning, we want to primarily ask the question, why is God's wrath being revealed? That's the question that our passage today tries to answer. Why is the wrath of God being revealed against all humanity. Paul answers the question 
in the first verse there. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven because in unrighteousness we suppress the truth. We restrain the truth. We actively resist what is plainly true. Now, a pastor that I like uses this imagery and it stuck with me for a long time. Imagine a beach ball. You guys know what a beach ball is? You're brilliant. You're brilliant people. I knew it. Um, Imagine a beach ball that's sitting on the top of the water. When you go up to a beach ball and you grab it and you shove it down underwater, that's the concept of suppressing it. Now, what happens if I let go of the beach ball? It pops back up. And this is the concept of suppressing the truth. You're actively, clearly the ball floats. The only way the ball's not going to float is if you push it down. And so Paul says this is what people do with the plain knowledge of God. They constantly resist it. They're always arguing against it. If they would stop arguing and just allow the thing to lay plain before them, the, the truth of God would pop back up and would be rather plain. But in our thinking, we have to continually, actively exert energy to resist the plain truth of God. We do this for instance, with abortion, right? Um, we call it, in, in our culture, it's continually called woman's, women's health care. And we keep painting abortion in this light, trying to hold down the truth that it's plainly murder. Because if we, if we stop for a minute and just look at it, we are slaughtering children created in the image of God in their mother's womb. It's plainly evil. You have two licks of common sense, and this is plainly murder. But what we do is we suppress that plain truth to continue in our wickedness and evil desires. So we have to create language that paints it in a better light. We have to create these arguments that try to, try to shift it and twist it so that we can continue to press down the truth that we are slaughtering children in the womb. It's wicked, evil suppression of the truth. Now, now, as always, if you've had an abortion, there's grace for you, man. Come to the cross and receive grace. There's no condemnation in my tone, but I am saying that this evil will be judged. And we need to hit our knees and continue to pray and cry out, especially as our current administration continues to take steps to promote this agenda. Now, Paul says this is what we do with the knowledge of God. We create arguments, we build our lives in a way, and we keep trying to talk ourselves into suppressing what is plainly true, that we are created beings. The unrighteous, they suppress what is obvious. And they suppress it by painting these... um, pictures which make them look intellectual. They use language and arguments that feel philosophically superior. And all the while, again, anyone with two licks of common sense can see right through it. We, it's suppression. So what, Paul says, they suppress the truth, what is obvious and plain. So what is the truth that the unrighteous suppress? Paul says they suppress The plain truth that God's invisible attributes have been put on display since creation. Now, we're going to do a little bit of theology, a little bit of... um, Paul is doing philosophy here, so just hang with me because it's going to get a little heady just for a second. God's invisible attributes have been put on display since creation. Mainly, Paul says, his eternal power and his divine nature. 
have been put on display since the dawn of creation. Now, Paul is arguing a plain line of reasoning that he'll argue further in his, in his sermons and acts. And the plain line of reasoning is simply this. The obvious cause of creation is a creator. That is obvious, Paul says. And again, I need you to remember that Paul is the greatest philosophical mind of his day. Um, um, historians and philosophers who are not Christians freely acknowledge that. Paul is brilliant. And Paul is saying, it is obvious that there is a creator who created this world. Now, evolutionary theory um, came, evolutionary theory was, was on the rise before Darwin wrote The Origins of Species. Um, but Darwin is kind of the straw that broke the, the camel's back with this ideology. Um, evolutionary theory does not answer the question of origins. Just because the book's called Origins of Species does not answer the question of origins. Because, uh, and, and I clearly don't believe in evolution, Be- because there are, there are only two, two solutions to the problem of creation. One, there is an uncaused cause or a God who is outside of time, space, and matter, who is eternal, put put the universe into motion, the uncaused cause caused creation to happen, or you could try to argue that the universe is eternal. Science is plain that the universe is not eternal. The universe has a beginning, and science says that the universe will have an end. And so the, there, there are only two causes. When you, if you try to argue for evolutionary theory, you, have to, you still don't have a beginning. The only thing you're arguing is that, 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 that the universe is, is the beginning, goes forever. And science plainly tells us that's not true. Now, you could try to go down the road of arguing some form of polytheism. But in polytheism, polytheism itself doesn't answer the question of origins. It only moves the question mark back. Hold on just for a second. If there are a plethora of multiple gods who get in some kind of fight and one god cuts the other god open and he spills out all of the universe and all of the worlds, that doesn't answer the question where those gods came from. It only puts the question mark back further. The plain, obvious philosophical truth is something or someone outside of time, space, and matter started this whole thing. It's plain. Paul says it's absolutely plain. Paul says that if you try to argue against that, you're just being silly. It's, it's plain. Now, what do, we, what do we know about this creator? Well, again, he has to be above and outside of matter in order to create matter. He has to be outside of time in order to create time. And so this, this creator, he's, he's, he's far superior to, to us as created beings. There is a creator created divide. We are not like him. He is not like us. That's what the word holy means. He's separate from us. And we see, Paul says, I'm, I'm, I'm not on notes here. I'm just going to talk to you for a second. Paul says, from creation, we see mainly his eternal power. Why would we see God's eternal power in creation? Because you couldn't make this and all of our scientific advancements and all of our brilliance and all of our high education and patting each other's back and feeling incredibly intelligent, not one of us could create matter. He is eternally, forever, all-powerful, far beyond us. What else do we see about God in creation? We see brilliant design. The human eye 
The human eye alone, something as small as that organ, is so far beyond in complexity anything that we've ever come close to designing. The human eye alone is far above our ability to create. You talk about insects. We can't do that. You can't design that. You can't make that. What do we learn about God in creation? Well, first we learn that he has eternal power. He alone has the ability to create. He makes things that we can't make. He's outside of time. We find God's eternal power. And then we find God's brilliance, his omniscience, his creativity, and something as small as an eyeball. He's able to create things that are far beyond us. We find in God's creation his own goodness When you look at a sunset that God painted, you see his creativity and his artistry. When you see the ocean or the mountaintops, it's intended to steal your breath so that you can acknowledge for a moment the goodness and the beauty of God. When you hold a newborn baby in your arms, you acknowledge the goodness of God in that creative act. When I hold my 18 kids... Okay, they're like bacteria, man. They just keep reproducing. And I, and I, and I, my, my, my two-year-old, we call her Lottie. Her name's Charlotte. My two-year-old is, is like on another level of crazy. Okay, just another level. She colored my one, I have a, so three girls. The oldest three are all girls. And I have a baby boy who's, who'll turn a one this month. She colors the one-year-old's entire face with a marker. Whole thing. And apparently he just sat there and took it. And then when they, he crawls out and they come out and we say, what in the world did you do? And she says, I made him a zombie. And she's going, zombie. When I, as a dad, I'm sitting in my dad chair, belly laughing, right? Like, like cackling at this kid who's painting her little brother a zombie. And, and I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying the goodness of God. And creating these children, their beautiful children, and their own sense of humor and creativity. I am enjoying God's goodness. And if you will stop for 10 minutes trying to suppress it, you can't deny it. That's what Paul's arguing. You cannot deny it. Paul says all of this is plain. And when we acknowledge these plain truths, it's only then that we can exist within the creator-created divide. And in the creator-created divide, when we acknowledge that, then we can thank him and worship him. The, The Westminster Catechism says, what is the chief end of man? What is man's purpose? It is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And it's only when I exist in that divide that I'm able to fulfill my chief end, which is to praise him and enjoy his goodness and his creativity and his artistry forever. How will you ever find fulfillment and purpose in life? You learn to live in that divide and glorify God and enjoy all of his blessings with a thankful heart. And this is what it means when you say the righteous shall live by faith or the righteous by faith will really live. You will have life and life abundantly as you exist within the creator created divide and you honor and thank him. Now, why does Paul 
argue that? Because we're in Romans chapter 1, and Paul's about to argue as we move forward that all people are guilty, right? That's where Paul's going. We are all guilty. We are all under God's wrath, and our only hope is the grace of God. And so what he's saying is that in all of this plain display of God's goodness, we suppress the truth in our rebellion, and Paul is arguing that no one has a good excuse because everyone has witnessed God's goodness. He's saying that all men are guilty of denying what is plainly known of God. He's saying that to live outside of this worship relationship where we acknowledge God is to live in self-deception and we have no excuse for it. And, and we have entire societies throughout history that are, that are set up in such a way in order to help one another suppress the truth of God. Paul says they knew God and they didn't worship him. They know God, but they refused to bow down and thank him. I watched him argue this in Acts 14. In Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas, they heal a crippled man who's been crippled from birth. A man's never walked from birth. And Paul and Barnabas pray for him and the man's healed and gets up on his feet. Now, when Paul and Barnabas... um, heal the man and the man gets up on his feet the crowd immediately assumes that paul is is hermes and that barnabas is zeus Um, and so they prepare sacrifices getting ready to worship paul and barnabas now listen acts 14 this is verse 15 through 18 paul says men why are you doing these things we also are men of like nature with you and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own way. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. So as the, as the crowd gets ready to worship Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas say, say, wait, the God of heaven who gives rain, who's caused your crops to grow, who's provided for you for all generations, that God is demanding your worship now. Turn from these vain things. And Paul will use this line of argument on multiple occasions. Now again, he says that as we reject God, we become futile in our thinking, and dark in our hearts. They claim to be wise, Paul says, but they're fools. They're ignorant. Paul says they exchange God's glory for the glory of false gods. God's created in the image of man, shapes like men. God's shaped like animals. In our modern society, we have made the intellect of man our God. Claiming to believe science, we deny its plain observations as it pertains to life in the womb or basic biology as it pertains to gender. We, we, we are elevating our ideologies to the place where the thinking of men, the thinking of men particularly in university towers, the thinking of these men now dictates to us what is true. And we are worshiping false gods. And Paul says again, when a society goes down that road and begins to worship false gods, the wrath of God will give you over to it. And so here, 
Seth, if you guys want to get ready to come, I'm going to wrap up here in a second. Here, this is a, um, shoot, how much do I want to say about this? Um, in the Enlightenment, and particularly with Nietzsche um, and, and some of these Hume, some of these philosophers, the idea was that as humanity continued to grow in education, as a, they, they would say that the more educated a society is, the more atheistic it becomes. And, and as humanity grows in education and grows in technology, man would liberate um, humanity from suffering. Men would liberate humanity from um, depression and, and poverty. And humanity would experience this kind of utopian um, existence as we grew in education and enlightenment. And so these kind of things were argued all, or are still essentially argued. Um, but for instance, World War I was called the war that will end all wars. What were they saying? They were saying that when this war is done, there will be no more war in all of history because man is excelling beyond this. We are leaving that old state of existence and through our intelligence and through our creativity, we are essentially evolving to this utopian state. Now, what did the 20th century bring to us? It did not bring utopian peace. It was the bloodiest century of all time. What did the technological advancements of man bring? It brought mustard gas to the front lines. It brought atomic bombs. It brought greater ability to murder mass amounts of people quickly. And so the argument was that we're going to get smarter and we're going to leave that old religion. And as we leave religion and we advance in our own intellect with our technological advancements and with our great philosophical systems, communism and those Marxism that we build, we are going to create a utopian state as we reject God. And what we got was not a utopian state. What we got was mass murder and bloodshed. Because God gives us over to our desires. Now, where are we today? Well, today we're in this place as a nation. And, I, and guys, hear me because you know that I don't, I don't, ha, I don't have great political ambitions. I don't, I, I'm talking purely about spiritual matters, okay? I'm talking about politics, talking about spiritual matters right now. We are in this place where... Again, abortion is being shoved to the front of our policies. And we are now in this place where, um, you know, it was five or ten years ago we were arguing about um, homosexual marriage. Or, but, but today everything's about uh, transgenderism. And um, we believe in the image of God, that all men are created in God's image. And so no matter a person's sexual um, actions, they, they still are worthy of, of dignity, okay? And so we do believe that our, we need to love our homosexual neighbors well, but that does not mean that I have to agree with their lifestyle. Those are two very different things. 
Um, and so it's the same thing. As we talk about transgenderism, there are going to be more transgender individuals in our society as this continues, and they're still worthy of dignity and honor. It's not our, it's not our goal to belittle people or to treat them as less than because they are created in the image of God and are redeemable, and, God, and, and the blood of Jesus was shed for these individuals. And so we believe in showing all people honor and dignity. But that does not mean I have to go along with the agenda. Okay, and, and we are at this place where we are, we are calling wickedness righteousness, and we are promoting our adolescent girls to pump their bodies with testosterone and to mutilate their flesh by chopping off their God-given organs that are intended to nurse their children in the future, and we're calling that righteous. We are allowing young men to stuff their bodies with estrogen. By the way, this is incredibly harmful, incredibly harmful for the biological makeup of a young individual who's still developing. To stuff testosterone in a, in a young girl is incredibly detrimental to her future natural health. We're allowing them to mutilate their bodies, and then we're exalting it as righteousness. We're calling it holy. And I just want to say to the fathers in the room, do not let your daughters or your children go down this destructive road. Because what's plain concerning creation is that God designed gender because God designed family. And what all of this is about, at the end of the day, it's, it's demonic activity that intends to destroy the family. And, and, and I'm, I just talk freely for a second. Um, the destruction of the family is, is, the, is intended to, because, because man and woman in union who love and serve each other, they reflect God to the earth. And when you destroy that union, it is an assault on the image of God. And that's where societies begin to fall apart. And so as we talk about, I'm just talking freely for a second, but as we have a conversation about what's healthy for particular minority groups in our society or any, any group in our society, what's healthy is the promotion of families, of fathers and mothers raising their, their children and, and I understand that there are, there are seasons and reasons why, why we, we don't all grow up in that setting. But from a, from a sociological standpoint, the, the, the healthiest thing for a child, this is a sociological fact, the healthiest thing for a child is to be raised in a home with the father and the mother who pray. That's the sociological fact. Father and mother who pray together. That's what produces healthy children. And what Paul is arguing today is, is that God's design is obvious. That's what Paul's arguing. God's design is obvious. He designed man and woman to reproduce, to bear generations, to raise them up. God, God tells the, the, the Israelites in, in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that their job is to raise children up in the way of the Lord, to teach them the ways of God. And in, in, in man and woman, loving and serving each other, producing children, raising them up in the glory of God, there we see God's goodness, God's creative artistry. There we see God's blessing upon our lives. And it's that that's being attacked. And I'm not promoting in any way that we... That we um, insult or belittle 
anyone in our society. Uh, we, we, as believers, we don't insult and belittle because we believe all people are created in the image of God. I am saying that I refuse to go along with an ideology that denies God and promotes the intellect of man. And we all sit around and watch as we allow our kids to stuff their body with hormones that are going to destroy them and, and young girls to, to chop off parts that were intended to nurse their future children. As a father and a mother, you should be doing everything you can to raise your children up in the fear and the admission of the Lord. Judgment of God on our nation, the judgment of God on our nation will be God stepping back and letting us have what we want. Which again is the destruction of our children. Okay, if you go ahead and stand to your feet. What we want to do is, Seth led us this week as we prayed on Wednesday night. If you haven't been to our Wednesday night prayers, you need to get here because it's been so beautiful in the presence of the Lord. And what Seth led us in was he was praying that, that the Lord would make us a thankful people, that we would be a people of great thanksgiving. What we want to do is we want to get to the place where we acknowledge what's plainly true, that God created us in his image, designed us in his likeness. And we wanna offer thanksgiving and praise. And we wanna be people who are pursue holiness, not a holiness that's stiff and rigid and, and pious, but a holiness that's, that's birthed from thankfulness, the holiness that's birthed from real appreciation for all that God's done. And so when we say we want to see this community have revival, what we mean is, yes, we want to see the power of the Holy Spirit poured out. Yes, by God, we want to see salvation. We want to see healing and deliverance. We want to see all those things. But the long game is to see our society return to thankful worship towards our Creator. We only have two options. We return to God and worship Him and thank Him for His, His beauty and His good gifts. Every good gift comes from Him. Or we continue to participate in a society that rejects Him and we exist outside of His covering, outside of His grace and leadership, and we will decay. And when, when we embrace a posture that promotes decay, you need to remember that you're embracing a posture that embraces decay for your children, for your grandchildren. It can't just be about us. It's got to be about generations. We need to get off the spiral, okay? And acknowledge God. And so this morning, I'm going to ask the worship team just to lead us in, in worship for a moment. I want us just to thank him, just to bless him, just to acknowledge his goodness. And, and I want to say this morning, if, you, um, if you've never given your life to Jesus, his blood that was shed on Calvary will wash you of all sin. What that means is that we've all fallen short. We've all failed. We've all done things that, that, are, that are not righteous. But because Jesus lived a perfect life, 
He died a death that was intended to take places with us, to swap places. It's a substitutionary death. And so if you would come to Christ today, you would be declared perfectly righteous, not because you actually have lived a perfectly righteous life, but because Jesus did it for you. And so the greatest thing you could do today is to thank Jesus for the cross of Calvary and receive salvation. So as we worship, just for a moment, um, Brad and Connie, do you guys want to come forward? Um, and Brad just felt in his heart today that there might be a few people who, who just need prayer, who just want someone to, to agree with them, maybe for healing. Maybe there's a depression or a heaviness over your life. Um, they'd love to pray with you and just pray that the Spirit would break that. But if you would for a minute, let's just worship. Let's just thank Him. Thank you, Lord. I love you, Lord. Come on, sing it for a minute. Oh, your mercy never fails me In all my days I've been held in your hands From the moment that I wake up Until I lay my head Oh, I will see Of the goodness of God Come on, Paul says this is where life begins all my life you have been faithful All my life you have been so, so good With every breath that I am able Oh, I will see of the goodness of God All my life all my life you have been faithful Thank you, Jesus And all my life you, you have been so, so good With every breath that I am able I will see the goodness of God Thank you, Lord so, Lord, we do in Jesus' name, we ask that you would make us a thankful people. We acknowledge you this morning. We love you this morning. Church, if you would, just say, I love you, Jesus. Love you, Jesus. We love you, Father. Amen, amen. Well, if you need prayer this morning, please get in the, uh, get in the altars. We'd love to pray for you before you leave. If not, we love you so much. We are so thankful for you. We pray you have a, a wonderfully blessed week. And worship team will hang for a minute if you'd like to worship for another moment. We love you. Y'all have a wonderful week. never fails me and all my days I've been held in your hands from the moment that I wake up until I lay my head I will see the goodness of God so my you have been faithful and all my life you have been so so good with every breath that I am able oh, I will see the goodness of God and my faithful all my life
Your goodness is running out, it's running after me. 